welcome on the barricades this is a podcast produced by eastern european journalists and academics i am your host maria ternat and with me as usual the co-host of the show the bulgarian-born polish journalist boyan stanislavski thank you for being here with us And again, we have somebody very, very interesting and informed, Mark Sloboda, international security analyst, commentator to various political media outlets, a former U.S. naval officer that is currently residing in Russia. Uh, He is a former lecturer uh, at Moscow State University, and he also taught at London School of Economics. Uh, I uh, would suggest that we start with your assessment on the situation on the ground. What is happening in uh, Bakhmut? Uh, probably because we saw so many media outlets from the West and so many discussions around the military equipment that was supposedly going to arrive in Ukraine that the authorities in Kiev decided to hold on to Bakhmut despite the fact that it was obvious that such an initiative, such an idea would not be a good one. And the troops in the city uh, are going to be encircled if they are not already encircled. This is a thing uh, that is going to happen very soon. So a very, very unwise decision. I I want us to to have your experience as a former U.S. naval officer, a member of the U.S. Army. How come the the, the authorities in Kiev uh, came up with such a controversial plan? Okay, so uh, Boy and Maria, thanks for having me. Uh, It's always an honor and a pleasure to be back on the barricades. Um, So, yeah, The situation as it stands across the entire length of the front from uh, southern Donetsk in Marinka and Ugladar uh, all the way up through Bakhmut, Seversk and into uh, northern Donetsk and Lugansk uh, in the Kremenaya, uh, Sviatova area. Uh, Russian forces are on what I would characterize as local offensives uh, everywhere. Uh, the, the the entire length of the line. And there are multiple uh, Kiev regime held cities uh, at this point. Bakhmut is, you know, probably certainly the most famous and attracts the most media attention. Uh, but also um, uh, Seversk, uh, Avdievka, Marinka and Ugladar are all facing Russian uh, encirclement by Russian forces at this point. And when I say Russian forces in Bakhmut, it's actually primarily um, Wagner, uh, the uh, Wagner uh, Russian uh, PMC uh, that is doing and has been doing the heavy lifting in that area. Now, uh, that be said, first of all, that is this is not the Russian big arrow winter offensive yet. That that hammer has yet to fall. There are still hundreds of thousands of Russian troops poised uh, at various places uh, around uh, the borders of of Russia and Ukraine and Belarus uh, that will be entering the fray within the next two weeks. And finally, the the, uh, Western uh, mainstream propaganda outlets have begun to kick up on that. And uh, there was a piece just in the uh, British Telegraph in the last couple of days that was trying to prepare the the Western audience that have been spoon fed a steady diet of of um, uh, propaganda uh, for months now uh, about the course of the conflict that shocking Russian gains may be imminent. Yes, yes, they are, uh, because that is the course of the conflict. And it's nice to, that you finally, uh, you know, have to admit that fact. Um, so Bakhmut is the uh, it, Russians call it Archomovsk, uh, as do the locals. Uh, they don't they don't call it Bakhmut. Um, uh, the it is in central Donetsk and it is the midpoint of the second to last Kiev regime major defensive line uh, in Donetsk and, and in East Ukraine. Um, 
After this, the last line is the Slavyansk, uh, Kramatorsk, Konstantinovka line. And, and that is actually where it all began. All right. Slavyansk and Kramatorsk is uh, just a couple, uh, you know, of uh, months after the Kiev regime uh, uh, overthrew the government and seized power in Kiev in 2014. The uprising against it began there. All right. So it's going to finish, at least in the Donbass, where it all began, which which I think is a nice bit of of uh, symmetry and poetry. Um, Bakhmut is the centerpiece of the second to last defensive line. And uh, just a, a month ago, uh, Russian forces, again, led by Wagner, punched through the uh, Kiev regime defensive lines just north of Bakhmut at Solodar, right? Mm-hmm. Named Sol Salt, uh, you know, in, in Slavic languages that I'm sure that a lot of your audience are familiar with because of the deep, insane science fiction, huge uh, salt mines that you could drive battleships through um, uh, beneath uh, Solodar. Uh, and that was uh, a major advance. And what you're seeing now is um, after that breakthrough up there that uh, forces, Russian uh, forces have been able to basically create an operational square where they're able to spread out in multiple directions. And uh, for the last, I would say, five or six weeks now, um, Russian forces have been um, circling north and south of Bakhmut while also pressing in in a holding operation into the residential area, uh, you know, which there aren't any people living anymore. It's, it's all been turned into firing points. Um, and residential areas are actually, once they're weaponized like that, they are usually the toughest urban areas to crack because they're very tall buildings uh, with, um, you know, lots of different former apartments uh, that are turned into to uh, firing and, and sniping points. So every every room, every floor becomes a little mini fortress. Um, and we've heard previously uh, from uh, Wagner's head, uh, Prigozhin, that the uh, Kiev regime set up 500 uh, a layered defense of 500 layered fortifications and trenches in Bakhmut. This might in future be regarded as the most pivotal battle of the conflict. Certainly it is thus far. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it, it may be uh, the battle that, that broke Kiev regime forces uh, uh, permanently. Uh, it has enormous uh, strategic uh, and tactical importance. Whatever the Western mainstream media is now suddenly trying to downplay the importance of the city. And if you'll notice, the Kiev regime has been throwing tens of thousands of reinforcements into this city for months in an attempt to hold it. And now suddenly we're saying, oh, it's no big deal if Bakhmut falls. It's not that important. Nonsense, right? That That's absurd, right? It's it's pure propaganda. Uh, it First of all, it is an important transport and logistics hub. Uh, the trains uh, run south of here and then hook around uh, and go back into Donbass. And in the north, they go all the way up uh, through um, Lugansk uh, and then into Russia, straight to Moscow. Uh, so for Russian forces in particular, uh, gaining control of, of this section of, of the rail would be a big improvement uh, in logistical situation across the whole rest of, of the eastern Ukrainian front. Uh, also, there are several, uh, at least two important highways that intersect through the city, and these highways eventually go on to Kiev, right? And that's what the Kiev regime has uh, uh, largely been using uh, up until uh, the last couple of weeks to supply the city. But uh, by now, as Wagner pushed into the center and got an operation where they were able to pin uh, Kiev regime forces to a large extent through direct engagement. Then they branched out to the north and south of the city 
um, and they've been uh, steadily putting the city into an operational uh, encirclement uh, where uh, within the last couple of days, the last major road that could be supplied has been put under fire control, which means that Russian artillery can regularly rain down uh, blazing hell. Uh, on anything transiting that road going in or out. Uh, there are several suburban uh, fortifications, uh, Vanovskaya to the south, uh, and uh, two more to the north, in, uh, Krasnaya Gara, uh, and another up there. Uh, they're still holding out Kiev regime forces there. There are also many fortresses tough to crack, but Russia uh, forces uh, have uh, wedged between them and they've effectively isolated them as well. So there's many cauldrons forming around each one of those pockets as well. And, uh, you know, let's talk a little bit about this uh, uh, metaphysics of, of this propaganda or of this, like the, the, the perception that they're trying to enforce on the public opinion in the West, because... Uh, you know, first thing is, of course, that they keep explaining that Ukraine's victory is right around the corner. You know, it, we just need a little more tanks, a, you know, a, a few more weeks, a few more months, whatever. Just, and Just another 120 billion taxpayer dollars. Yeah, yeah just that. Just that. Exactly. Exactly. Maybe twice, even if Maybe necessary. Twice. But yeah. <laughs> but then uh, but then the question is, uh, you know, even myself, I'm not a military person. And, and I'm, I really, you know, I have to rely on, on the expertise of people like you and other guests on our show that have also had some military background. And, uh, you know, they are all, I mean, all of you are basically saying the same thing, that it's meaningless. I mean, all those tanks beat 100, 200, 300. It's not going to help. It's not going to change. It might it might have an effect, but it will yeah. not change anything. And, and I wonder, you know, uh, what about, you know, that's metaphysics. Like, that's one part of those metaphysics. Like, what are they hoping for? What is what is the kind of is it is it ignorance? plain stupidity i don't know is it is it that they're actually hoping for something is it like they are hoping for things to maybe somehow suddenly you know fold for russia and you know russia decides for some metaphysical reason that they're expecting some miracle i don't know that things are gonna you know the tide's gonna be turned the table is going to basically be turned 180 degrees whatever i'm, I'm not sure i'm asking that genuinely i yeah. really don't know and then you know when you come to the other part of the metaphysics is zelensky enforcing uh, sorry reinforcing failure all the time and i mean this bakhmut thing even even the new york times is already starting to prepare the american public opinion for the fall of bakhmut okay i've seen those articles like two or three days ago uh i mean they might be older but i've seen them two or three days ago and and there are other things you know those media headlines that you referred to in, in the british press and and many other places even the polish right-wing media are already starting to i mean right-wing i mean the pro pro-government obsessively pro-government ones which are they are already starting to discuss like you know well bakhmut is a city which basically might turn out to be the other you know the 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 kind of the copy of mariupol so we can see the discourse is changing but still the reinforcement of that failure continues and i wonder what what is what is happening there do, do you have any idea there are some theories by, by the way but what's yours yeah so i mean first of all what the west hoped and planned for is that Western sanctions would crush the Russian economy, mm -hmm. right? And that that would lead into, you know, what is essentially the remainder of their, their plans now, uh, that the ruble would crash, that the Russian people would be impoverished, that they would uh, also some not only bad understanding of, of uh, global markets, of the Russian economy, of the importance of commodities, but also some primary misunderstanding of, of the Russian domestic political situation in society. They believe that the Russian people would be, you know, economically impoverished um, uh, and uh, also that they would be extremely uh, upset uh, about uh, casualty numbers coming back from Ukraine, uh, that they they would, you know, uh, not support uh, the Russian uh, uh, military intervention in Ukraine, uh, and that this would put pressure on the government if it didn't outright result in some type of regime change, that it, it would at least force uh, the Kremlin to, to pull out, uh, to drastically uh, scale down, uh, you know, uh, their their plans and, and, and so forth. Um, obviously, that didn't happen. And that was a huge miscalculation on the West's part. The Russian economy has, in, in, in by any conceivable measure, 
been more resilient to Western, uh, you know, existential economic war of sanctions and everything uh, than even the Russian government was expecting. Actually, the Russian finance ministry was predicting some pretty dire things. Uh, so that is a huge surprise to everyone. Uh, and that plays into what is from the, you know the entire rest of the time since it was clear that plan was not going to work out is information war this is the big hope to convince the russian people russian society you know the troops at the front but also sometimes even more importantly the families back at home that russian casualties are so high that ukrainian troops are doing so well that they're resisting so uh, in such a united fashion and, and driving out the Russians and to pound home uh, what the West sees as, you know, this evil aggression home and, and to create the perception of, of Russian government and military incompetence of um, uh, insane and, and frankly absurd uh, casualty rates, which, you know, continues, you know, right up in the Western media until today. Um, and to try to force political pressure, domestic pressure at home to get the Russian government to, uh, if not uh, withdraw, then again, at least directly scale down and go to the negotiation table early uh, with, you know, much less than they would gain through uh, a, a military victory on the battlefield. Right. Uh, that that is the hope that is that is all they have left. And uh, to that end, you know, they keep presenting a propaganda image that they they cannot allow to be tarnished of Ukrainian strength and Ukrainian victory and Russian corruption and Russian incompetence and right low Russian morale and the like. And, and you're not allowed to diverge from that even the the uh the main western main analytical you know military think tanks like the institute for the study of war you know perhaps better known as the newland kangan newland kagan uh prop neocon propaganda institute right uh they they are, are continually wrong in their military assessment of everything from how many more missiles Russia has uh, to its offensive uh, potential to the number of casualties, everything. I, and, and, you know, of course, no one's ever going to call them on it. Um, you know, uh, people in the Western media and, and commentary, no matter how many times they're wrong and predicting the collapse of, of the Russian government and economy every year for the last 20 years, they still draw paychecks and they still have honored fellow positions at these institutions. Yeah, and no one's going to really... confront them. Okay, but, but then the reality is going to confront certain uh, statements, right? I mean, at one point, it'll happen at that one the, point, the Bakhmut it will, will fall. Yes. You know? yes. and, and then what are they going to say? What, at that point, what are they going to say is that, oh, it's the Ukrainians fault. The government was corrupt and we didn't understand it. We didn't really know what was going on. And the Russians infiltrated it and there were saboteurs. And, and you know, that will be the, you know, the, the end. I mean, there there will always be an, an escape clause. Right. And, and of course, Zelensky at some point will receive will more than likely receive a great deal of of that personal blame, some some, uh, you know, evidence about his incompetence or his corruption or his drug use or something will be trotted out to provide that exculpatory, you know, excuse that that factor. Um, but th there is uh, more to it. Right. Um, for one, the U.S. military you know the, the way that the the, uh, the 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 thinkers and the planners right the military wing of the blob first of all they think that this is great they are perfectly happy with this situation right this may be a plan b or a plan c but that's the way they operate right they always have a default position right just like with syria they weren't able to achieve the uh you know uh, regime change in syria but they still occupy the most valuable part of the country where the oil and wheat fields are uh the country is weak uh it, it is in a, a continual a continual state now of frozen conflict um and it's denying iran a strong partner 
that will carry them, you know, uh, you know, provide, uh, you know, uh, a partner right on the Mediterranean, which was the real goal of of the entire operations in Syria. They think that, OK, it wasn't plan A, but plan B was perfectly acceptable and they won. <laughs> the same thing in Ukraine. Um, the, the way they look at it, you know, they go back to the 2014 moment when Yanukovych was uh, you know, taking a final look at the EU association agreement as a neoliberal shock therapy diktat. And he was ready to say, yeah, no, uh, what Russia's offering with the Eurasian Union sounds a whole of a lot better. And it's actually got some cash attached uh, and it won't cost me my political career when I unemploy tens of millions of people to privatize off every state company and, and, and rebuild it up from from the ground up without any funds to help. And uh that would bring Ukraine more firmly into the Russian geopolitical camp, right? Um, so that was the alternative they were looking at. Instead, they, I think, beyond all of their hopes of expectation, they overthrew the government. They managed to, to enforce the uh, Banderite ideology of West Ukraine to a very large extent on the rest of the country, at least central Ukraine, partially in East Ukraine, and turned Ukraine into an armed, uh, you know, um, uh, battle platform, an anti-Russia on, on Russia's borders. And even if parts of Ukraine are lost, even if um, the economy of Ukraine is wrecked, that is a win for them because that denies that peace that russia would have integrated into their geopolitical bloc and that's the way these people think they think of the world as a risk board right you're familiar with the the board game risk right if you don't take a spot on the board the other people will take it and make use of it and if you can't take it and hold it then you destroy it so that even if they win, you make it a pirate victory that Russia now has to spend uh, tens of billions, hundreds of billions of dollars to reconstruct Ukraine while being cut out of, you know, the still, uh, you know, globally dominant Western financial economic uh, sector. And in terms of losses, right, not only were they successful in 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 helping foster this West Ukrainian ideology on a lot of Ukrainians. But whatever the Ukrainians thought of what has happened in 2004, since 2014, whatever they thought of the regime in Kiev, whatever they thought of Russians beforehand, right? Tens of thousands of Ukraine, hundreds of thousands have been brought into the military. And every one of those boys and girls, mostly boys, some girls, that dies and is ki are killed by Russians, whatever they thought before is a Ukrainian family that now hates Russia and Russians forever. Mm -hmm. That makes that space ungovernable. Right. Mm -hmm. To a large that's what they're hoping for. Right. I'm not so sure that it will work out that way in East Ukraine, but I think it probably will in central Ukraine. Right. They're denying that space. Plus, the European economy is wrecked. Right. They're, they're, the decades of European prosperity is an at an end. Get used to it. Your lives are, are going to become. I'm know, from Bulgaria, you know. Um, I, I, I've been yeah, in crisis for the last you're, 30 you're years. You're already there, right? Yeah. You're, you're, you're well familiar, right? Well, the rest of, of Europe is going to be down, brought down to the Bulgarian level, right? Yeah. The German media. Finally, some equality. Yes. Finally, yeah. some equality, right? Uh, bring everyone down to your level, yeah. right? Um, German uh, you know, media is full of stories. The deindustrialization of Germany and of Europe in general is what they're talking about. And as the Wall Street Journal, as Forbes, right, and the others have talked about, where are those European businesses going? Across the, the United pond. States, where they can still find uh, relatively better energy prices that will allow them you know to continue doing business it's happening right now macron has uh, cried about it and so forth but the biggest 
uh, you know, most energy intensive German businesses, European businesses um, are all flocking to the United States right now. Win for the United States. That's the way they yeah. look at it. Think of the military right right now. The majority of the military hardware that is being destroyed right in the Ukrainian steppes and forests is European. Right. Let notice that little sleight of hand. A war provide Abrams. You provide the leopards. You go ahead first. The Abrams will be there like a year or a couple of years from now. Right. <laughs> so large numbers of of uh, European military gear in particular. Right. Uh, U.S. military gear as well. But that's usually the excess stuff. Right. Thousands of Humvees that are 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 basically you know. Uh, SUVs, you know, jumped up SUVs and the like, but excess Bradleys and the like, things the U.S. military can spare that aren't going to be relevant in the coming bigger conflict with China uh, in the South China Sea uh, over Taiwan. Why? Because it's going to be an air and naval war. This this type of, uh, you know, land-centric APCs, mm -hmm. IFVs, right, you know, infantry fighting vehicles, uh, some, some artillery, it's not going to be useful in that conflict, right? They can afford to waste it. But all of these European companies that are losing their gear, right? They're going to lose leopards. They're going, uh, eventually, they're going to be sending typhoon fighters as well. And they'll be shot down from the sky like crazy by Russia's S-400 uh, air defense and, and you know, larger uh, integrated air defense networks. Where are they going to get replacement military gear from? Not from Germany, because the German military industrial complex is already saying we can't produce what we've been producing at the prices that we set out before, because now energy costs are through the roof because we're not getting cheap Russian gas and, and you know, to a lesser extent, oil. So they're going to be buying American military gear to replace what they're losing in Ukraine. If you have any money... If you have serious money, because it takes serious money at this point, invest in the U.S. military industrial complex because it's all happy trails as far as they're concerned. They're all looking there. They're in the money for the conceivable future. Everything is golden for them. Mm. Um, well, you know, but because... look, what you're saying suggests that you shouldn't be supporting the, the war in Ukraine and what the Russians are doing, because sure. it, it seems that, first of all, you cannot bomb democracy into a country like the US tried in Afghanistan and other places. So you cannot bomb anti-Nazism into people's heads. It's true. And, and my question is, why is it that the Russians haven't tried to address the problem where it started, that is in people's heads with all this pro-Bandera, uh, you know, ideology. Why haven't they tried to suffocate Ukraine with anti-Bandera propaganda in order to solve the problem? Because Russians are good at it. They, they have very limited soft power resources. They've tried. They've tried for the last eight years, right? overwhelming western money ngos you know support of all of this has has been flooding into ukraine and russian attempts at soft power are are minuscule and relatively ineffective in comparison they have brought azov into schools to teach children right that's a regular thing there's no way russia can compete with that right russia can compete with hard power on the battlefield is it a good solution? No, it is a terrible solution. Is the alternative worse? Yes, that is the calculus that was made, right? That mm -hmm. this is not a good solution. It will not end well, right? It will not be some complete Russian victory, right? There will be an insurgency and destabilization uh, in Ukraine for the foreseeable future, uh, you know, for the rest of our lives, even if they manage to dislodge the regime in Kiev or at least, you know, secure most of Eastern Ukraine. Uh, you know, Ukraine will be the new divided Germany with the nightmare, right. probably the border, right? It will not be a good solution, but it's better 
than the alternative, right. which is a complete Banderite Ukraine, uh, you know, right up on Russia's borders, uh, slowly, um, you know, corrupting from the Russian perspective, the people of East Ukraine fully into that West Ukrainian anti-Russian uh, national identity conception and uh, ideology as well. It's not a good solution. It's a terrible solution, but the alternative is worse. Okay, so let's speak a little bit about the prospects for the future, because you said it yourself, and this idea has been floated recently, even in Newsweek and media outlets like that, about the uh, partitioning of Ukraine being the only way out, like immediate, in immediate terms. And, uh, you know, of course, again, I I tend to agree with it based on everything I heard by, you know, uttered by guests on our program and everything I read, that this is this is the only way, probably, because what it seems, and, and please correct me, of course, if you, if you think I'm wrong, but it seems like Russia does not have neither the wheel nor the capacity at the moment, like militarily even speaking, to occupy the whole of Ukraine. And there's no, 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 not much of a point in it, neither militarily nor politically nor in any other way, really. And that the socio-cultural code between the people's, uh, you know, the people in, in Western Ukraine, the, the, the inhabitants of, of Western Ukraine and Eastern Ukraine, former Ukraine, as some like to refer to it, is is a are two completely different concepts basically and which are which are mutually exclusive to a large extent by the way despite the fact that they were unlocked that they were locked in one country uh for a long time so i'm thinking and you know russia is also using uh this uh this phrase a lot i mean russian commentators even some russian officials that you know there's there has to be some self-determination for uh for east ukrainians and that they can be crushed and you know i i kind of i tend to agree with it of course there has to be and someone like all, all processes like that they have to start with someone actually reaching out to the people and trying to figure out what is the massive uh you know the massive emotion about certain so political emotion about certain elements and and quite clearly we now know that uh you know, the question of territorial integrity, which is referred to as some kind of sacred phenomenon, is no longer is no longer <laughs> possible. Yeah. <laughs> OK. Yeah. Thanks. So, yeah, that, that's that, that's pretty much impossible. But then, you know, it's also the case of, of the people there. I mean, the people in Ukraine, they don't seem to want any kind of territorial integrity. And I'm not talking only about those East Ukrainians who are supporting uh, to some extent, you know, uh, the uh, the, the war, the military operation, the military efforts on the part of Russia. But I'm also talking about the West Ukrainians, because, you know, many of those people, by the way, East from the East and from the West are now in Poland, where I live and where I've lived for the last, you know, nearly 30 years. And uh, and I think it's important to stress, by the way, that there are many Ukrainians from the East here as well. I mean, the Polish are all convinced that it's all people from Lvov and around. No, that's not true. And, you know, I've spoken to many of them, even in my neighborhood, which speaks Russian now, which I have no problem with. I like Russian. I speak Russian. I understand I can speak to those people. But what comes from those conversations? And I think it's it's something that I'd like you to comment on, because what they say you know, of course, they don't like each other to hang out with each other so much, those from around Lvov and those from around Kharkov, for example. But, you know, they share one thing. They say, and you can read that also in many open forums in the Internet, you know, of those migrant, uh, you know, people from Ukraine, migrants from Ukraine in Poland, they say, and other European countries, they say, look, let's just, let's stop talking about this, you know, we're going to take Crimea, we're going to take back Luhansk, we're going to take back the... Let's just stop talking this crap, because no one believes in it. Nobody, I mean, with the exception maybe of some Zelensky fanatics, if there are any, you know, no one believes in that, including those people who are from this West Ukraine, and they just want to go home, you know, somewhere home. They don't want to live in permanent exile. And, you know, I'm thinking that we should also give those people a voice and i don't know whether russia will be uh, will be in a position to give them a voice but let, let let's let's have the west give them a voice at least and those people mark they are thinking they clearly are i mean some of them are even looking to you know going back through history books and all kinds of texts which are available in the internet and some people have even mentioned that they should reestablish some kind of uh, you know the the continuation of the kingdom of galicia or lodomeria or you know that kind of stuff some others speak about themselves that they want to go back home to galicia or west ukraine or something and i want you to please talk about that for a while i mean is there a possibility that someone will actually reach out to the to those people and kind of you know listen to those voices to those discussions and allow them to have some kind of rump Ukraine, which is not going to be anti-Russia, 
but it's going to be some kind of home for all those people that are now spread around Europe and, you know, millions of them in Poland and, and Slovakia and Romania and Bulgaria too, by the way. What's your, what, what are your thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. First of all, Russia will never occupy all of Ukraine. I don't believe so. I agree with you. Not only is, is you know, to militarily occupy uh, Ukraine would, re you know, require millions of troops to occupy i mean all you know east ukraine it's much less because a great percentage of the population right that decreases as you go west is at, at 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 least you know receptive or at best apathy you know at worst apathetic right to to uh you know uh, uh the russian uh and and you know east ukrainian uh politician uh, uh presence there uh as, as you move further west you know it goes the exact opposite right and ukraine is a very socially and politically divided country and when you said they have actually been part of one country for you know a long time uh, well World, Since World 1991, II, okay. right? World War II is decades. It's not actually yeah. that long yeah. a period of time because West Ukraine was not part of Ukraine That's uh, true. up until uh, the 1930s, right? Um, so uh, that uh, you know, they were part of of Poland and and the uh, Austro-Hungarian Austro Empire yeah. and the Polish Lithuanian. That's where the Galicia uh, Galicia Lodomeria thing is basically yes. coming from, right? Yeah. Yes, their tradition kind of. So I I believe that what the, the whole conflict right now is basically about what the partition of Ukraine will be, mm -hmm. right? This is what the, the, the battlefield is. Where will it lie? Will a, a Russian defeat would be just Donbass and, and Crimea, right? That would be, I Russians consider that a, a loss, right? Uh, if you're talking, you know, then uh, uh, Odessa, uh, you know, the, the southeast coast and Kharkov, that's a partial victory, right? A victory from the Russian perspective is all of East Ukraine, maybe with Kiev on the other side or not. At least the half of the Kiev, which is. Yeah, but that that's already becomes a defensive, you know, an yeah. indefensible line once ever you get past the Dnieper. Uh, so, I mean, this is what all of this is about now is, is what the boundaries of that uh, uh, future state will be. I do not believe that, and, and I believe it will be called Ukraine, right? Mm -hmm. On the other side of the Dnieper, they will have to. And Russia will simply absorb the rest of East Ukraine into Russia. Why? So as to not allow it to be pried apart by independent politics again. If you, I mean, there's nothing wrong with an East, the idea of an East Ukrainian state any more than there was the idea of a Ukrainian state, right? Nova, Russia, so, you know, so forth. But uh, then you're allowing the whole cycle to repeat itself <laughs> like it did with Ukraine. So from the Russian perspective now, there, you know, the government perspective, there is no solution but to take it all into Russia to prevent that space from being corrupted mm -hmm. and, and being used as a platform again, uh, which is a shame. How about Odessa? Yeah, but, but Mark, before you speak about Odessa, just one uh, supplementary question, please, about this, because I, I wonder, you know, I'm not very familiar with the Ukraine um kind of political perception of things and and I'm, i i understand the major difference between you know west and east ukrainians and, and uh, the kind of in general terms i understand it and you know to the extent that i've been able to educate myself about it but you know i wonder when people bring up today and this is why what i'd like you to comment on briefly you know when i see those west ukrainians bringing up not believing the the, the west anymore not believing that any weapon shipments is going to help them and stuff like that they just want to have like some home some kind of somewhere and when they invoke those traditions which you know i mean i was i probably have last time i've heard of galicia and Lodomeria was like back in high school or something like that 20 years ago and i wonder like when they do that, when they do that, that means that they've actually invested some thought, some, 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 you know, some research into this, or someone has floated it to them. Because you know, I, I, I kind of, I tend to have some sympathy for those people in a sense. Of course, I don't like the Banderite ideology. Of course, it's alien to me totally and completely, and so on and so forth. But, but I, I try to. I mean, I'm trying to to be sympathetic to the fact that okay, we've lost home. We're now in exile, kind of right, in refuge. 
to be more precise. We want to go back home somewhere. And well, let's look into history. Let's look on the map and so on. What do you what do you make of it? Like, is it is it something genuine that that they are perhaps not trying to establish the anti-Russia anymore? Perhaps they are starting to think like, okay, the Russians are the Russians or the U- East Ukrainians, whatever, and we want to have our own separate thing. Is it is it something that is new, or is it something that, for example, you have come across as a sentiment, as a feeling, as a, as a kind of political, I don't know, political reference point, if you like, in the uh, Ukrainian discourse before yeah sure so up until 2014 that was actually a really popular idea right mm-hmm. when it didn't look like they could electorally take the country uh permanently right mm-hmm. for one thing the west ukrainian political mm-hmm. parties were divided right there was the nationalists there was the nationalists who are nest nationalists and then there's the moderate national okay they were all nationalists <laughs> Right. Uh, but varying degrees and, and around different personas and so forth. Right. Uh, Timoshenko, Svoboda, you know, uh, and 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 so forth. Um, so um, and even since seizing the country in 2014, there have continually been people on, you know, the Maidan media on Euro Maidan and others suggesting we'd probably be better off without East Ukraine. Let's get rid of the Donbass and Crimea mm-hmm. and, and we can have the rest of you, you know, Ukraine. And, you know, um, uh, now they're really disenchanted with large numbers, of course, people in Kharkov and Kherson and Zaporozhye, um, you know, uh, they're facing, you know, the prospect of mass ethno-political cleansing and purges and shooting all the collaborators as they call them. And they're, they're really, so- Or tying think, to, po- to, yeah. to polls, right? Yeah. Right. Right. The government line is still, of course, we'll take back all of Ukraine. Right. Uh, and then and then, you know, the the the, the 2014. All right. Uh, we, we all know that's not going to happen. And eventually they will scale that back. I do, however, believe it will always be an anti-Russian. Right. You that believe is, that that always. Russia will allow this. It, it's. Or it, it's not in a position to to have not in a position to do anything about it. Yes. I don't think. As I told Scott Ritter, it's in the people's heads. You cannot control with bombs what they think. So yeah, it's too ingrained. If what almost five decades of the Soviet Union couldn't get the banderism out of out of uh, West Ukraine, then Mm. nothing modern Russia will will be able to. I I I think there's some people in the Russian government who believe, from a military perspective that it would be best to slog through for 5, 10, 15 years, whatever it takes uh, to to secure the West Ukrainian border as well. But that would be an, an occupation against an overwhelmingly hostile force. I don't. So you are thinking that they are going to have this rump Ukraine without calling it Galicia, whatever, like, yeah. you know, let's forget about all those things that I just mentioned previously. They're going to have something, some kind of rump state. And this is going to be the anti-Russia. This is yeah. going to be and this is going to be allowed into NATO or things like that. I don't I, it doesn't have to be brought into NATO. Uh-huh. Right. It doesn't have to be brought into the EU. Right. Turkey's had an EU association agreement since 1997. Right. Uh, You know, come on. Uh, And it will be perfectly fine. All right. This is Russia was just as afraid of Ukraine being turned into a de facto member of NATO. Right. Mm. Where NATO trains and arms and funds and and does everything else. Right. Uh, But, uh, you know, they don't have the formal legal shield which is the only thing they don't have yeah Yeah, the only thing they don't have but that is important distinction too because it it, for one thing it puts the nuclear umbrella over it which which is uh, you know a not insignificant and the threat of article five all right Mm -hmm. and 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 so forth uh but um i i i think maybe it, it, you know, a lot of that is political and it depends on what political sentiments are like in Europe at the end of this. You know, if Hungary had their say, they would never be it. Right. Uh, uh, Viktor Orban, you know, the Hungarian government is very unhappy with the regime in Kiev because of their treatment of the ethnic Hungarian minority. In, uh, uh, and they've been particularly Russia. brutal towards this minority recently with all those yeah. uh, they're, all they're, those actions of forceful mass press ganging them and yeah. throwing them into Bakhmut. Of course, yeah. they're not happy about mm. it, right? Um, it's a form of of ethno political cleansing to say revenge, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. and revenge, yeah. 
So and, and if you take a look at the voting pre-2014, you will see that Zakarpatia always voted with the Party of Regions and uh, before that. Why? Because they love the Party of Regions in East Ukraine? No, because it was better for them than voting for the West Ukrainian uh, political parties. So I, 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 I do not believe... Of course, it would be better for Russia to not have a a anti-Russian rump Ukraine, you know, whatever the borders are, you know, everything west of the Dnieper or just, you know, West Ukraine proper, whatever it ends up being. But there's nothing that they can do about it. You know, they mm-hmm. there may be people in the Russian government now who think that it's a solvable problem, uh, you know, in the long run. I do not. I, I agree with Maria here for once <laughs> uh, that, uh, you know, identity uh, when it's so strongly ingrained. And I think it's also important to realize that a great deal of what is happening right now, it's not only about, you know, the physical borders or, or, or the physical partition of Ukraine, but it's about the mental, the national identity partition of Ukraine as well, because there's 30 percent of, you know, uh, of Ukraine that is, you know, West Ukrainian national identity conception. Okay, but 30, 35% of it that is East Ukrainian national identity. Mm-hmm. Right. But what about Central Ukraine? They mm-hmm. don't have a strong national identity conception, or they didn't up until 2014. They've swung back and forth, voted one way or the other, you know, whatever tends to actually make their personal economic situation better, or they believe it might, Mm -hmm. or so forth. To a large extent, that's also still in play. And it has strung very strongly to the West side now. Uh, But Russia still thinks that maybe they can make a play for the, the hearts and minds of but that's, yes, yes. That, that's my question. Maybe they can, because those people whom I'm I'm having this yeah. kind of direct experience yeah. with, and, and, and I realize that it's not good to extrapolate one's own individual yeah. experience with some people here and there, but I still, you know, I, I still kind of, you know, I, I, I keep thinking about it. It kind of stays with me because those people from West Ukraine who are here, you know, or write all those things on the internet about the least, they, they don't seem to be making the point that we want to go back home, which is anti-Russia 100%. They don't, that, that's not the point that they're trying to make. They just want to go somewhere where they feel safe. And if if someone had ever listened to them, then probably it would it would not be turned this rump Ukraine into anti-Russia, but it will have to be by the force of the circumstances. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Okay. I, 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 unfortunately, I think, you know, the strength of political passions often overweighs those without the strength of political passions mm-hmm. and people on on the you you know the maidan side have have pointed out repeatedly since the start of this back in 2014 um oh russia says we're all you know uh neo nazis right that's the way they refer they reduce the russian position to not we're saying they're banderites but to saying they're nazis to try to, to you know to delegitimize the whole argument uh, but take a look at our elections the far right parties uh do terrible right you know the azov's uh, political movement right um you know the right sector had their own party and everything and they're they're right in that regard but one first of all their sentiment became spread throughout the mainstream you want to call them maidan parties now they're the only political parties because everything that is not you know pro maidan has been has been banned in the country at this point uh but you know i mean who the the european solidarity party right the party of poroshenko wait right who who is the number two person in that party who's that karubi ah he's <laughs> still there okay i thought they i, I thought neo- they hit him i thought no, they hit yeah, him somewhere. well they did but i mean he's still number two in that party the head neo-nazi himself right mm. uh so uh, they're spread throughout all the parties right now e- even Zelensky's people even if they don't at a mental level you know believe in the whole banderite thing they think that those people are necessary they're useful idiots to build a ukraine you know separate from russia that's the way they look at it you know Zelensky's people look at it i think a lot of them i think even even Zelensky himself has internalized 
a lot of the banderism since he came to power, right? You know, going a, close to three years now. And he realized what the regime he inherited was built on. And, you know, you we all saw in, in the beginning when he went to East Ukraine to the Azov commanders out there and he says, I'm going to try and enforce the Minsk agreements. You need to pull your weapons back. And right there on camera, Azov commander telling him, you know, no, we're not. F off. <laughs> you know, who are you? Right. And he's like, I'm not some Joe Schmo off the street. I'm the president of Ukraine. He whined. And the Azov guy was like, yeah, sure. Okay, whatever. We're not pulling the weapons back. <laughs> right. And very soon after that, he stopped any attempt. You know, I, I, I think he started then to realize what his regime that he inherited was built on uh, and that, it, you know, that that's what he was stuck with. Uh, and and since then, I, I assume that he's, you know, in a kind of Stockholm syndrome situation, he started to internalize it. He didn't start off as a banderite. He's no. from Dnipropetrovsk. You know, he, he comes from he's not Jewish himself, you know, not in the faith. But, you know, but his father uh, is is a, a very serious uh, Ukrainian Russian Jew, you know, uh, from Dnipropetrovsk. All of Zelensky's movies, you know, all of his comedic career. He was speaking in Russian. Yeah, right? because he struggles was... sometimes to speak Ukrainian. Even yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah he does. There are a lot of you know. I mean, they're they're starting to get it down better. But um, you know, uh, if you have a situation where the president's own movies, the way they were originally filmed in Russian, right, are banned in the country. How absurd is that? Yeah, right? I haven't thought of that. Incredible. Yeah. It, it, it just points, you know, how absurd this whole political project is to begin with. But it, it has nearly succeeded. And if Russia hadn't intervened, it would have succeeded in the long run. In another 10, 20 years, it all would have been ineraceable. And even now, they may win the long game, men, you know, in, in, in the mental space, the information warfare, nothing is, is certain. Tanks on the ground, boots on the ground, they mean something, but they don't mean everything. Mm -hmm. So, and certainly, I agree. I think central Ukraine is still in play for, you know, their hearts and minds in the long term. I, I think it's a long shot, actually, uh, from the Russian and East Ukrainian perspective. But, you know, there's still some hope there. Thank you Thanks. so much. All the very best to everyone. Stay healthy and keep fighting. We'll see you in the next segment.